Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. If you weren't with us last week, let me give you the background so you know where we're at. This letter that Paul wrote to a town called Colossae, I think is very American in its mindset. And what I mean by that is they were being taught that Jesus is a great place to start, but you can't really rely on Jesus. You're going to have to take care of yourself, provide for yourself. And so they were mixing a little bit of this, a little bit of that from other religions to try to go deeper than Jesus could take them. And Paul wrote them a letter encouraging them not to do this because it was a mistaken thing to try to add anything to the work that Jesus accomplished in his life and in who he is. And so Paul began the first 14 verses of this letter by simply saying, I want to celebrate with you what you have in Jesus because he was writing to people that were convinced Jesus is Lord. So he said, I want to celebrate with you what you have, but I also want to pray that you go beyond that, that you experience it more for yourself and really know deep in your soul and by your interactions that Jesus is more than enough. And he begins then in this second piece in verses 15 through 20, by whether it was a song somebody else wrote, or maybe it's a, a piece of poetry that Paul wrote, but many scholars teach that this is probably a passage that would have been used in churches to proclaim the name of Jesus, just like our worship team led us this morning in songs that just spoke of his name and lifted our hearts. And this is a very familiar passage. Let's read verses 15 through 17. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul's making a claim here. It's a claim that I'm, I'm 100% comfortable with, and to be honest with you, I'm learning to give my life to that. He is telling us that Jesus is God, not a junior God on internship. God didn't send Jesus to earth to teach him how to be God. He sent him fully God, complete. This, this whole tension between the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus, it messes with all of us. It confuses all of us because we can't even do the humanity thing. How would we do both? How could he be all God and all man at the same time? But it's one of the mysteries of the gospel. It's one of the mysteries that Paul will talk about in the next few weeks with us. But it's true. And if it's true, and I pray that you'll bet your life on that, not parts of your life, your complete life. If that's true, that he is God, then he has to be Lord of every element of our life. He has to be Lord of our Thursday afternoon, not just our Sunday morning. He has to be Lord over every relationship we have, the hard ones, the easy ones, the good ones, the private ones, the public ones. If he is God, and he demands and desires and deserves to be Lord over everything. And our Christian walk of faith is learning how to do that and live in that, enjoy that, celebrate it. See, the false teachers were deceiving people with persuasive words, Paul will say. And so he wants us to see who Jesus is because I don't want you to say, well, there's God and then Jesus is just a shadow of that. No, Jesus is God. And when you learn from Jesus, you learn what God is. In fact, if you want to know what God's tone is, if you want to know what his attitude is, if you want to know how God sees sinners and how God sees the lost, how God sees the nations, how God sees different people of different dialects and skin color, if you want to know how God feels about all of that, look at Jesus. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 1 says he came to show us everything in grace and truth. You see, the question of Colossians is not what if Jesus isn't enough. 
The question of Colossians is this, what if he is? What if he is everything he's purported to be? You see, when we get that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, we're to learn something, experience something, and even possibly feel something. And when we're done, my prayer for our church, for each person who journeys with us over this seven-week window, that from this study, here's what I desire, that you will love Jesus more, that you will want Jesus more, and because of that, you'll trust him more. And your walk of faith will be propelled forward to know him, love him, want him, and trust him. This would be Paul's design too. So what I want to show you is to understand who God is and why God's doing what he's doing, we have to look at who Jesus was and what he did. Now, none of these points will surprise you this morning, but I think it's really important that sometimes we just love on Jesus by acknowledging what he is in spite of what the world says. And this is what Paul writes. God is merciful. How do I know God is merciful? Because Jesus was merciful. And I just want to share with you some stories. I'm going to give you the chapters of the books of the gospel. And if I mention them and you want to write them down and be a Bible study for you this week, please do so. If you want them later, just email me and I'd be happy to share them with you. But I want to tell you some stories to show you that Jesus was God and he revealed who God was to us. He's merciful. How do I know that? Because every time in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Jesus encounters a sinner, not a person who made a mistake, it frustrates me to no end when I hear sin defined as, well, it's just a mistake I made. No, a mistake is getting up in the middle of the night, not turning on the light, stubbing your toe on the dresser. That's a mistake. Foreseeable accident, but you didn't see it. It just happened. Boom, you're hurt. A sin is a choice. And when Jesus encountered people who cho chose to rebel against God's will and God's goodness and do whatever they were going to do for whatever reason they wanted to do, when Jesus confronted someone who was actually a sinner and knew it, he offers mercy. John chapter 8, he encounters a woman who's caught in adultery. It's not suspected she was committing adultery. It's not rumored she was caught in the act. What disgusts me is the man is never brought to Jesus, just the woman. Most scholars believe that she was set up so that they could bring her before Jesus and humiliate him and expose him. Not that he'd been with her, but how he treated her. While all the condemnation is raining down on this woman and all the judgment of the people around her are all over her, Jesus ignores their, their indignation, and he simply says to her, your sins have been forgiven, go and sin no more. He doesn't say she didn't sin. He doesn't act like her sin's not a big deal. He's merciful. He tells her, go and sin no more. Why would he let her walk away from her sin forgiven? Because he would not walk away from our sin. The reason he could free her was he would not be freed. He would go to the cross for her. He would go to the cross for you, and he would go to the cross for me. That's why he can free us from our sins to walk away as if they never happened because God's justice was met in his sacrifice. He's merciful. In Luke 13, he cries over Jerusalem. He says, I would love nothing more than to scoop you in my arms and protect you. And these are the people he's saying this over. He's hurting over. He wants to offer them mercy, but they won't let him. Within 12 to 18 hours, they would brutalize him, torture him, kill him. And yet, he showed compassion and mercy on people who had none for him. In the face of blatant guilt and shame, Jesus offers mercy to those who practice no self-justification. 
No excuses, no reasons, no alibis. The person who says, you're right, I rebelled against you. It sickens me. It breaks my heart. I'm so sorry. In those persons, every single time, what does Jesus offer? Mercy. And God does the same through Jesus. God is compassionate. He's not only merciful, he cares. He feels. He hurts with us. He's compassionate. In John chapter 11, Jesus has a friend named Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Every time Jesus was in Bethany, he would go to their home and they would uh, practice hospitality. They would allow him to house their people, would come in and, and they were just great friends of his. Well, Lazarus gets sick. Jesus is two days away teaching in a community and the word gets to him that Lazarus is dying and Jesus stays. He's two days away. It would take him two full days to get to Lazarus' home, but Jesus stays an additional two days teaching and healing and working in the town. And his disciples are kind of wondering like, Jesus, why aren't you going to Lazarus' house? And Jesus said, this won't end in death. It did. It will end in God's glory. It did. And so he delays two days, and then he walks two days, they get to the, t the house and Martha runs out. Allow me a paraphrase. John 11, if you want to see it for yourself. Martha runs up to him and says, if you would have come when we asked, this wouldn't have happened. His sister Mary comes out later. Lazarus' sister Mary comes out and she says the same thing to Jesus. Almost the same words. If you would have come, this would not have happened. Jesus said, take me to the tomb. And so they take him to Lazarus' tomb and there's a crowd gathering and people are uh, wailing and weeping and some are legitimate and sincere and others are just being helpful. And Jesus gets to the tomb. Now, Jesus knows what he's about to do. He's not worried it's not going to work. He gets to the tomb, and the Bible says, now, you know, if, if it were Jesus, if, if I were Jesus, which is a scary sentence on this stage, I would have used the line my parents used with me when I was whining or crying or fake crying. My dad would snap his fingers and say, dry up. Any of you ever hear that when you were a kid? Dry up. Now, if I'm Jesus and I go to the tomb, I'd tell all these insincere people, get out of here. And all the other people, dry up. Do you know who I am? I'm going to fix this. He doesn't. The Bible simply says he weeps. Why would Jesus start crying at a death he's about to end? Why? It doesn't make any sense, right? Logically, if he was above that and he was this Ottoman, he would simply, simply, quiet, quit crying, it's making noise. Lazarus, get here. And Lazarus does. But he doesn't. He cries. Why does he cry? Because death was not natural in God's kingdom. Death was never intended. And Jesus saw the pain and hurt that death brings. Jesus is not so high in the heavens, he doesn't understand humanity. When you hurt, he hurts. When you cry, he cries. He feels what you feel, and he feels it deeply. And he wept, not just to prove he has feelings, because it overwhelms him when he sees what death has done to the beautiful thing God created. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's powerful. He's powerful. And we know this, and I, could, I promise you, I could do six weeks on this and be the happiest preacher in America. I want to show you how powerful he is. I want you to think of something. I want you to think of everything we ruined when we sinned. Oh, blame Adam and Eve if you want, but I think you and I can take enough accountability on our own, can't we? Think of all the relationships you've broken, all the fears you have, all the shame you hold, all the feelings that we go through because we told God no and realized God's way always works. Ours never does. I want to take you through a journey of the story of Jesus and I want, to, I want you to see his power. In Luke chapter eight, Jesus is sleeping in a storm. The storm is so violent that professional fishermen think they're gonna die. They go up to the front of the boat, tap Jesus on the shoulder and I think Jesus is human because I think he woke up cranky. I do too, how about you? <laughs> Jesus gets awakened in the middle of the storm. They say, don't you care? I think we're gonna die. Jesus gets up and he says, peace be still and instantly the storm doesn't blow away, it's gone. 
The waters that were shaking the ship and think, making them think they were going to drown, they go completely still. Jesus goes back to the front of the boat, and Luke records that the disciples looked at each other and thought, who is this guy? That's what they ask. Who's this guy that even creation listens to him? I mean, they'd seen him do some cool things. This was different. Oh, I could take you to Luke 17 or many other passages where Jesus meets 10 men with leprosy. You don't get healed from leprosy. You die from leprosy. Almost everybody who had leprosy died from it, except 10 men that Jesus healed. Oh, I can take you to the blind seeing and the deaf hearing and the, the mute speaking. I can take you to the cripple walking and dancing and leaping. You see, what I want to show you is Jesus is powerful over creation. Jesus is powerful over disease. In Mark 5, I can take you to the fact that he heals a little girl by simply walking into her house and her father would have had nothing to do with Jesus, but he needed Jesus and he surrendered to Jesus and Jesus walks in the house and he walks over and he touches her and he says, little girl, get up, and she gets up. Disease, creation, death. Mark Uh, chapter five, he gets in a boat and he goes across the Sea of Galilee to the steep hillside area and it was the the Gentile side, the non-Jewish side and there was a demon over there and he was famous because whatever they tried to do to contain him, to keep him from hurting people, he would break chains, he would escape from everything they had, they could not control him and Jesus comes off of the beach and this demon knows he's coming and this demon runs, this demon-possessed man runs toward Jesus and, and Jesus gets out on the beach and there's gonna be a confrontation. Now if this is Hollywood, right? The demon would run up to Jesus and go, let's do this. It's not what happens. The demon runs toward Jesus and falls on his face and he asks Jesus this question. Son of God, are you going to destroy me now? Isn't it funny that demons have a better understanding of who Jesus is than we do? You know, he's just extra. He's good to have. He's good in... No, 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 no. Every demon, every single demon in scripture that saw Jesus identified who he was. And guess what? They identified his authority and his power, not theirs. Every single time. So you have nature, disease, death, demons. What I'm trying to say is this. Everything you and I broke in our sin, Jesus restores by his authority. Everything in Genesis that was destroyed in the garden, Jesus shows that he overcame all of it for us. He's pretty powerful. He's also eternal. This is one that I'm a little bit nervous you're gonna check out on me and go, I don't know, that's not as important. Go back to the powerful stuff. Those are fun stories. Let me tell you why eternal matters. In verse 15, it says, he is the firstborn of all creation. You and I will interpret that with English words that he's the first thing God created. That's not what that term means. That's a false understanding of that. In fact, it's blasphemous. You see, he's not the first thing created because Jesus wasn't created. He's the creator What that phrase means is he's the best of everything. He's superior to anything created. It's a term that means 132 times that phrase is used in scripture. It means status or power. He's the man. It's his. He's over all of it. He's prominent over everything. Over creation, over the stars, the, the celestial beings, over the waters, over the waves, over the storms, everything. Jesus is in control of it. Sickness, death, demons, And he's been around. He brought them all into existence and he controls all of them. We'll also uh, read in just a few moments that he's the firstborn among the dead. I got good news for you, church. If he's the firstborn from among the dead, it means there's gonna be more. That's us. The good news is Jesus didn't come out of the tomb to show how powerful he was. He came out of the tomb so you and I could too. Firstborn. Authority over it all. Verse 16. 
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Paul's gonna play with us here. He's gonna challenge some of our, our, our rational American thinking that there's only what we can observe and measure. Paul's like, oh, no, 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 Jesus is over that too. And he's over the things you can't see, the things in the heavenlies. You see, concerning the visible, if you can touch it, taste it, see it, smell it, if you can experience it in any way, Jesus gave that to us. Now, we mess it up. Can I have an amen? We can take pure medicine and use it for recreational drugs. We can take some of the best things God's ever given us and use it again. We can take the beauty and wonder and fantastic gift of food, amen, and turn it into a crutch, something that satiates us and keeps us from actually pursuing our best. We can take the best things that God's given us in the entire world. You see, what Paul is saying is that Jesus brought this together. If you can see it and taste it, if you can experience it, Jesus gave it to us for a good thing. We need to restore it back to its good thing. Everything that he created. Now, I don't know about you, but living in Missouri, it's kind of weird. My trees don't even know what to do. Two days of winter, followed by six weeks of spring, followed by two days of winter. My trees started budding at Christmas. They're so out of whack, they don't know what's going on. God's got that all under control. His growth patterns cannot be stopped. He's put all this together. If you can experience it, it's been a gift. Concerning the invisible, it says that Jesus created angels and demons. That'll mess with you. He created everything that there is in the heavenlies and on the earth. It, he created it for himself and he created it through himself. He's not junior God on internship. He's not trying to figure out how to be God. He's always God. He's always been God. And secondly, he designed the world to work in a certain way. The laws of nature didn't just happen. How would they just happen and be consistently enforced and hold this place together for thousands of years? It's not an accident. It's purposeful. So the reason your body holds together and every molecule holds together, the reason the sun's at the distance it is and burns at the perfect temperature for us, the reason that all of these things exist is because God, through Jesus Christ, created it to be so, and Jesus keeps it together. He's not a part of creation. He's creator. Verse 16, whether thrones or powers, or I love Paul's like, bring it. Name a power, a throne, a ruler, or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him hold all things together. He is before all things. John chapter eight, some religious leaders are getting fed up with Jesus acting like the man. So they say to him, by what authority, by what authority do you do what you do? And Jesus says in John eight, yeah, Abraham knew what I was doing. And they're like, wait, you're not even 50 years old. What do you mean you knew Abraham? And Jesus says an expression, very truly I tell you before Abraham was born, I am. There's a mistaken notion in our rational world, that you won't be able to find any passage of scripture in which Jesus said he was God. It's a false, false assumption. Here's why. Because Jesus, you, you might have remembered, many times Jesus would say, my, my day has not come, my hour has not come. Jesus knew that God would deliver him into the hands of his executioners at the perfect time. We now know on this side of the story that that perfect time was that particular Passover that year where he could be the Passover lamb for the nation of Israel. So Jesus would not answer questions as directly as we might have wanted him to because he knew that the moment he said he was God, that they would take him and execute him. And he was waiting on God's perfect timing. But he never denied the fact. In fact, in John chapter 8, what's beautiful is when Jesus says, just 
before Abraham was, I am, they knew he was using what Moses used in, in Exodus. You remember Moses said to God, when I go before Pharaoh, who am I? And he said, you're nobody. Tell him I am sent you. And th- when, he's, when Jesus said, before Abraham, I am, notice that his audience knew what he was saying, even when we didn't. We think, well, I wish he would have just said I'm God. He did. He called himself what God told Moses he was. In other words, he said, I'm God, and I have existed from all time. And I want you to know his audience that he said that to, as subtle as it was, they got it because they tried to kill him instantly. He has identified he's eternal. He's God. He's above all. He is enough, and without him, no thing is enough. The Hebrew author wrote a letter to a bunch of Jewish Christians who were trying to add a little bit more to Jesus every now and then, and he wrote these words at the beginning of his letter, or she wrote these words at the beginning of their letter. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, in church, we're living in the last days. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. This is not one man's idea. This was understood by the church from the very beginning. Jesus is God, and if he's God, he should be taken seriously. Because God is using him to communicate to us what he desires from each of us and for each of us. Merciful, compassionate, powerful, eternal, God is active in our world through his kingdom. See, God didn't just start this and then go back up and sit on his throne and say, good luck. He actually sent Jesus to engage us again back into the kingdom, and then he sent the Holy Spirit to fulfill us in that kingdom, to give us a purpose and power and authority that's his. In verse 18, and Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. As a pastor, I know this is true. I'm not being melodramatic. There are people sitting in this room right now that are at this church because of a horrible experience you had at another church. And I'll tell you the truth, there's people at other churches in this community because they had a horrible, horrible experience at this church. And sometimes we look at the church and we think, man, it's jacked up. Imperfect people leading, imperfect choices being made. Sometimes there's attitudes, sometimes there's divisions that are not about the unity of Jesus. They're all about personal opinions and power. We all know it's true. We know that the local church is not the full epitome of what can be, But I tell you what, the universal church works. It still works. When we focus on the authority of Jesus instead of the headship of men, if we let Jesus be the head of the church instead of men, and I'll tell you something, and I love being at this church because our elders have no authority. I have no authority. Our staff has no authority. Jesus has the authority. The rest of us have responsibility. And these men take that responsibility seriously, and I praise God for them regularly. Because instead of making their church, all they want to simply do is make sure God gets what God wants. And when that happens, the church works. And when that happens, Jesus Christ is lifted to his right spot. We're an imperfect church, but man, we got a perfect leader. And when we love the church and serve him through the church, I think we can survive a lot of things. And our imperfection melts away. Jesus is the head of the unstoppable, unmovable kingdom of God. 
It works. It's saving lives every day. The kingdom is expanding. And no matter what culture you live in, no matter what zip code, no matter what skin color, no matter what gender, no matter what government system you use, no matter what expertise you have, education you have, whether you're a success or a failure, Jesus Christ invites you into his church. It works. He alone. The church is his. He does not need our help in leading it. He need, we need his help in serving it. And so he is calling all of us to serve his big C church, even if it's in the local little C church, to serve the purpose. He's preeminent. What does that mean? That's a theologian's word for me. What does it mean? Well, here's what it means. There's nothing else like him, nothing more glorious, nothing more beautiful, nothing more right, more powerful, more true, more real. There's no one more dependable or faithful. There's no one you can trust in more. There's no one who delivers more. There's no one who keeps his promise like Jesus. There's nothing that threatens him or his reality. He is preeminent in all ways, and he can bring that to your life if you surrender to his kingship. Merciful, compassion, power, eternal, actively involved in our lives, and God is with us with every bit of his power. Verse 19. Verse 19 and 20 has been the best part of this for me in my journey through this text. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Do you wanna know how God feels about the gospel message? Makes him happy. He was pleased that Jesus would come and reveal him to us. He, he was pleased that Jesus would go to the cross and die. As weird as that is, God was willing to let that happen. And when he sent his only son, he took on flesh and came down and paid the price of justice by also delivering the price of love and grace. It pleased God to do so. God finds pleasure when we receive the gospel. It's what he wanted to do. Jesus told another story. So let me frame Jesus this way. Jesus is the father on the balcony who looks out every night hoping that over the horizon, his lost son and daughter who rebelled, who would rather be anywhere else than with him, when they walked away and they went and destroyed their lives and realized that the world promises things it can't deliver, Jesus is the one who sits on the throne and every night he looks for that child to come home. And when that child turns from their sin and begins to come back to the presence of their God, Jesus runs and embraces them. And the child cries out in the story, let me serve you, let me earn my way back. I don't deserve to be your child anymore. I, I told you to leave me alone and I ruined everything. And the father says, stop. Put the ring back on him, put the crown back on him, put the robe back on him, bring him back home. We're gonna celebrate. What was lost has been found. That's our God. You wanna know who God is? Look at Jesus. But Jesus is also that same father who has a child in the house who may not have rebelled outwardly, but definitely was rebelling inwardly. Because you remember the older son said to the father, well, you've never thrown a party for me. And the father says, everything I have is yours. You see, there are people in this room who need to come home and there are people who need to enjoy being home. And God is kind and comforting to both, welcoming. It pleases him for the prodigal to come home and for the prodigal at home to enjoy being in his presence. We no longer should listen to people who say Jesus can't bring us what we need because he already has. And if this is true, if what I've shared with you this morning and what Paul wrote is true, then there's two things I want us to think about. They're hard things to hear, but I want you to understand, I'm not grumpy about this. I'm not angry about this. 
This is so important that if it offends, it's worth the offense. And if it challenges, it's worth the challenge. The first thing is this. If this is true, then the commands of God in the Bible should be taken seriously and strategically. If Jesus is the only solution and the only redemption we have is through the blood of Jesus Christ, then what God calls us to and what he reveals himself to be should be strategically and seriously the most important things we focus on. Now, I grew up in a church, and so I'm going to confess this, and I know I made a couple people uneasy earlier, but I just want to be honest with you. I mean, I just feel like I'm supposed to say this. I grew up in the church thinking my preacher never wanted me to have a good time. And that's not what he meant, but I always sat in church going, oh, no, I can't watch a Cub game because I should be Bible studying, or now I can't go outside and play because I should be witnessing to my friend, and I just turned it all into how inconvenient. And then I lived my life the way I wanted to live it, and at about the age of 16, 17 years of age, I looked back on who I was, and I was not impressed. I was not proud, I was not happy, I was ashamed. And so even though I had made a profession of faith, I had never really sat down and read the scriptures. I never really tried to do the things I was asked to do. I never asked for the help that he left for me. And so I was wandering as a professed believer without any direction and any hope. And then at a church camp, a preacher preached a message that so convicted me, all I could do was cry. And I repented that I thought I could do this without him. And every day since then, God has been merciful to be patient for me, to walk with me. The minutes I ran away, he would wait right where he was. He knew I'd return. And he loved and honored his commitment, his character. I wonder how many of us in the room today believe that the Bible's good. Jesus is great. God is kind. But we really don't know what he wants for us. We really aren't pleased with being in his presence. We need to take the Bible serious and strategic, not as a list of to-dos, but to discover who we serve, who loves us, and what he offers us. Second thing, we should be more serious about our spiritual lives than we are. Are you caring for your soul? Are you caring for your soul? More than just one day getting to heaven. Are you feeding your soul in the world of lies where now everybody can lie out front and when you catch them, the answer is so. When truth doesn't matter anymore, when people with authority and power don't even care, who's gonna be the ones to stand up and say right is right and not judgmentally, but offer the fact that right is right because it's a blessing of God. It's encouraging and strengthening and life-giving. Are we just going to live in a world that we believe the lies and say, Jesus is a really good place to start, but boy, you better take care of your financial future and you better run your home like a man does or like a woman does, or you better live your life and pursue the dream and pursue all the power. I'm saying nothing's wrong with that. Without Jesus, that will leave you empty, desperate, and broken. With Jesus, he will lead you into moments where not only do you find fulfillment in him, but those things he lets you accomplish in life can be useful to helping other people know who he is. Church, we have to fight for our soul. The series we're in right now, the series is gonna follow it, and the one after that is not gonna be playful. It's gonna be honest. If Jesus is enough, it'll change our marriages, our jobs, our rest, our recreation, our finances. It'll change everything. And not to strip you of all joy. In fact, I believe you'll only find joy when everything we are is centered on who Jesus Christ is And not only what he wants for us, but what he wants for those around you. There is a life to be lived. And in Jesus Christ, we come to life. Let's stand together. 
Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.